I think that rights are a social construct. They are rights against our fellow creatures, and they are therefore rights which, in a democracy, require a measure of consent by those fellow creatures. They can't be imposed. They can't exist independently of the social arrangements that we make in order to govern ourselves. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser, and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting, well-known people, and we try and drill down into their core beliefs and work out a little bit what they're on about. And I'm delighted uh, to say that I have with me um, taking his confession, as it were, this morning is um, Jonathan Sumption, um, former um, uh, member of the Supreme Court and uh, historian and. Um, very interesting person to talk to, Reith lecturer last year. So, um, Jonathan, welcome to Confessions. I'm glad to be here. The, the way this works is we, we uh, the first thing I like to ask people is just if they would just paint a picture for me of their family background and where they come from, something about their roots. I wonder if you'd just help me situate you in terms of your background a little. My father was a naval officer who, after the war, became briefly a solicitor, but basically he made his career uh, in banking. So I had a very comfortable childhood. My father was in some ways a rather difficult person, uh, and he, for practical purposes, went bust uh, in the 60s when I was at university, and that was something of a crisis in the family. But he requalified as a barrister and pulled himself up again and went on flourishing after an interval. So that's really who I am. I am a middle-class egghead. <laughs> and were, were, were books a part of your, you know, the sort of family yes. household? and Books, that the, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that my father was a great bibliophile and his reading was pretty selective. But there were a lot of books around, and he certainly believed that one ought to be reading books. And indeed, um, when I was about eight or ten, I think, he adopted the practice of taking me to a large bookshop, which then existed in Baker Street. Uh, and I was uh, not just allowed, but required to choose three books. There's a certain randomness about going to a bookshop and choosing three books, especially when you can choose any books you like. Uh, but randomness has its advantages. Uh, you, it's, the, it's, really, it's the sort of Radio 3 effect. Uh, you never listened to anything by Szymanowski, but suddenly it's Szymanowski week. And uh, <laughs> so you listen to it for want of anything better to do, and it turns out you quite like it. Right, 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 yeah. And was your, was your mother similarly sort of My encouraging? mother wasn't a great reader at all. I mean, my mother was um, brought up in Ireland, and... Uh, came over to England during the war in order to join the services and ended up running the um, services postal system for the Mediterranean uh, at the age of 23 or 4. Oh, wow. uh, but that was the kind of opportunity that the war gave to people of that generation. It brought disaster and opportunity at one and the same time. I don't think that my generation can ever really appreciate quite what it must have felt like. And was there a sort of default political perspective around there that you were... My father was a conservative, and indeed he 
was quite active in the um, conservative central office in the early 1950s, and he fought a parliamentary seat in a, in a general election um, twice. Unsuccessfully? Unsuccessfully on each occasion. It was his great ambition to get into the House of Commons. I think that if he'd got in for just one parliament, he would have felt that uh, his life had ended in something worthwhile. Uh, it wouldn't have had to be very long. Just five years or three or four would have been fine, but it didn't happen. Do I take from that that he was a disappointed he was man. A, he was an intensely disappointed man because his political ambitions got nowhere and uh, that is what he had really wanted more than anything else and uh, religion is that a part of this the brew of the of the sumption family no, no my i was brought up as a catholic because that was what my mother was when i was at school at the age of 15 I decided that I wasn't a Catholic, um, and I became an Anglican, which is what I have been ever since. I, Jolly good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to a school where Anglican worship was particularly beautiful, and certainly it was the aesthetic side that initially attracted me. But as I became more familiar with some of the literary background of Anglicanism, I came to find it attractive for many other reasons. You just told me a moment ago that you would consider yourself a sort of low church Anglican. Yes. And, and it's surprising, therefore, that you just, uh, you, you describe the pull of it as being an aesthetic one. Yes. Uh, I, uh, I mean, the, the church services at school were really neither high church nor low church uh, they took place in an extremely beautiful building. There was a choir. We, we ought to say this is Eton College. This with is the, Eton College, and, yes. and the and the chapel is is sort of modelled on King's College, Cambridge, isn't it? Uh, or possibly uh, parts of it are because old, older than King's oh, College, see. Cambridge. But and the 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 roof vault dates from the 1960s, though it corresponds, roughly speaking, to the original design, and it has some of the finest modern stained glass in the UK, designed by John Piper. It's it's a fantastic uh, series of stained glass windows, a brilliant commission and beautifully executed. So, when you're at school, is is history the thing that you suddenly you're, you're suddenly growing as as something that you want to spend your life doing? When I was at school, I discovered that I was bad at everything else other than thinking. <laughs> um, so, uh, I st I decided that if I was going to achieve anything, it would have to be in that department. Does that mean sports? Is that, is that... I mean, my entire life has been a constant quest to take as little exercise as possible. <laughs> and the idea of watching other people taking exercise is absolute anathema. <laughs> well, at least you don't have to do it yourself. No, no, no. Well, of course, yeah, there was a time at school when you did have to do it yourself, um, but it was quite brief. Right. I, I had a, a, a... It was a very flexible school, and eventually I persuaded them that bicycling was a which is a solitary form of exercise um, and a bit less intolerable than other sorts. So the life of the mind was, that was, it was obvious to you that the life of the mind was going to be your future. It was the obvious, it was obvious to me that I had no other future. <laughs> right. And how did history become the thing that you were uh, attracted to? Um, it, it, partly because in the random selection of books, uh, when my father used to take me to uh, the bookshop in Baker Street, <coughs> history seemed more often than not to come to come into it. Um, 
that probably was the origin. Um, it was uh, also that um, Eton had a very wide um, historical curriculum, it was very interestingly taught by, uh, in some cases, inspirational people, and it was something that I don't know why I warmed to it, but I did. The only other thing that I could possibly have studied at university was classics, and I decided on history. One of the things that schoolboys often are attracted to about history is the sort of romance, I guess, the sort of romance of history. But looking at your, I, I haven't read at all, apologies, but your history of the Hundred Years' War, which has been, you know, in a way, one of your great life's projects yeah. part of it is to sort of like get rid of all of that propaganda from the tudors about henry v and all of that sort of stuff all that sort of in a way schoolboy romance mm. about cressy and agincourt and all of that sort of stuff that seems to be part of what you're about have i got that wrong or? well i think all historians have got to be uh, as objective as possible uh, i think that you have to recognize that romance isn't just something that people think about the past many people think about it in the present, Henry V was one example. He was his own propagandist on a really big scale. Um, so you can't dismiss romance altogether because it's a, an essential part of the manipulative toolkit which politicians have always used and indeed still do. I, I couldn't help but just think about parallels between all of that and what's been going on in Brexit and so forth over the last few years. I, I'd be fascinated to hear you muse on those <laughs> connections. Is Boris what you had in mind when you just mentioned their no, politicians not, not at the particularly. present? But, you know, uh, General de Gaulle said about France that he had throughout his life had a certain idea of France. It's the opening sentence of his memoirs. It's probably his most famous single dictum. Um, Boris Johnson is essentially a British Gaullist, um, and his feelings about Britain are, I suspect, a, an amalgam of um, um, an analytical thought and romanticism, mm. the latter being quite an important element. But in that respect, as the parallel with de Gaulle shows, he's not at all unusual among British statesmen. Um, I mean, Churchill, who is his, uh, he says is his hero, was an, an obvious example of somebody who intensely believed in the myths, and by that I don't mean lies, I mean myths um, uh, about British identity. Clement Attlee famously did, and indeed uh, so have most prime ministers who had any sense of history. Um, the last Prime Minister who I think quite plainly felt this very strongly was probably Jim Callaghan. Um, but the last Prime Minister who really knew a lot about English history, British history, um, was Harold Macmillan. Harold Macmillan was very well read in history. I don't believe any Prime Minister since then has um, seriously thought about it. I honestly think that Tony Blair believed that history began in 1997. <laughs> Does your uh, historical reading and study make you more suspicious of, I guess, nationalism and, uh, and the, um, the, the sort of times that we are? Well, it depends what you mean by nationalism. Um, if by the times that we're in you mean Brexit... 
I think Brexit is actually about identity uh, rather than nationalism. And, you know, uh, identity is part of nationalism, but it's very far from being the whole. But, but the question about your sus- being suspicious of it. I am suspicious of all attempts to approach complicated issues on a, a purely emotional basis. Uh, I don't think you can say uh, that emotion is completely irrelevant because we, we live in a world of men and women and their sentiments are a significant political factor. So simply saying this, that or the other thing is good for you is not enough. And much of the rest is in fact emotion. So you can't ignore it. But I think that you ought to be careful not to share it if you want to form reliable views about what's going on. You can say, as an observer, emotion has its place in politics, but you're not a very good observer if you're carried away by emotion yourself. There's that uh, great exchange. I'm trying to remember what what book it's in. I think it it might be in the sign of four between Holmes and Watson, where uh, Holmes is is doing his sort of typically sort of rationalistic take on the world. And Watson sort of says, but the one thing he's missing about, you know, even in his analysis, is the motion is real, it's true, it's there yeah. in the world. And if you don't take it into account, then Absolutely you, right. you, you actually haven't formed a picture of what it is that you're trying to describe. Yes, I agree with that entirely. So you became a history don. I mean, I took my finals at Oxford in 1970, and I was elected to a fellowship at Magdalen College in history. Is that where you were an undergraduate as yes. well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in at the beginning of 1971. Uh, so that was my first job. At that stage, I had no uh, career plans in mind other than to be an academic historian. And the Middle Ages was the Middle Ages. I mean, I, the reason why I interested myself in the Middle Ages was that um, it was the next thing. That's to say that at school we did. Uh, Tudors and Stuarts was the syllabus, but we were also encouraged to look seriously at the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. You know, I didn't just want to do more of that. The next thing, uh, since there was nothing after the 20th century when I went to university, um, the next thing was to go backwards. So I went into the Middle Ages. And the Middle Ages is a very interesting period because it is a period which is semi-rational, um, like most human civilizations, they they are a mixture of um, prejudice, emotion, and rationality. Um, and the thing about the Middle Ages is that we know it is just about possible to tackle a large subject and to feel that you have read almost everything that the source material has to offer. Um, It gets progressively more difficult as time goes on and the materials become more plentiful. But you can discover everything that the sources will tell you about the Middle Ages. And um, that will not be everything by any means. The rest of it is speculation, but that adds to the fun. I mean, imagine a world in which you could be certain about everything. What would be the fun in writing history? <laughs> no, it's a dastardly world. You, you must get cheesed off 
with the way in which medieval is often used as a pejorative. It's often used to mean barbarous, barbarous, and that is faintly ridiculous. I mean, a lot of the things that we associate with the Middle Ages are actually much more true of subsequent periods. People think, for example, that witchcraft was a medieval phenomenon when what they mean it was is that it was bad. Actually, the high point of witchcraft was the 17th century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this is the age of the scientific revolution, of, um, uh, of, of, of the origins of the rule of law, of a high degree of rationalism in, in, in philosophy across Europe and very much so in, in, in Britain. Uh, and yet it was also the, uh, the age which uh, really believed in witchcraft more than anything. And there's a theory that this was because people needed a substitute for the magic which the church had provided before the revolution, before the Reformation. Oh, I see. Uh, and this was their alternative. I don't know whether I agree with that theory, but I think it's quite widely So, so it's a release. It's a sort of valve that, uh, with all your low church instincts having been uh, having come to the fore, then yeah. people need a sort of yes. some sort of superstitious outlet. Well, the, the Church of England was a trifle austere in the 17th century. Even in the days of Archbishop Lord, it was pretty austere by comparison with what it is now. So you're spending your time doing history, but then. At some point, you decide you want to sort of have a different career entirely. Yes. At the time, I mean, I decided about uh, three years into my fellowship at Magdalen that I wanted to be a lawyer. The main motive force, I have to admit, was the money. Uh, I didn't want to be enormously rich, but I did want to be slightly better off than I felt I would ever be as an academic. I was also deterred by the mounting scale of the administrative work, which academics were just beginning in the early 70s to have to do, I didn't think I was either good at administration or likely to enjoy it. And I therefore decided that I had to leave before uh, I was trapped. You got out in time. <laughs> that was the idea. And, you know, the, the choice of law was uh, motivated more than anything else by the fact that it was an intellectually challenging discipline in which one could be self-employed. Um, I am constitutionally unfit to be an employee. Um, technically, of course, for the last seven years of uh, my career, I was um, em an employee of Her Majesty, but it didn't feel like that. When you look at the university today, do you, you're extremely glad of your decision, I imagine. Well, I am. I mean, this isn't the university's fault. I think that um, uh, government regulation in the form of very demanding teaching um, criteria and research assessment frameworks and so on have done huge damage to the universities. They have made it almost impossible to to write a major work because of the amount of time you have to spend throwing off articles. Filling in forms. Uh, and filling in forms and so on. Um, in addition, academics are very badly paid, which means that except for those who have uh, successful professional spouses or large amounts of inherited money, uh, it has become a, a much less attractive career than it once was. And I think that that's regrettable. I think that there is an accidental quality in a lot of intellectual achievement. Um, you, you can't aim to produce a work of genius 
uh, you it's something that sometimes happens and there's a large element of of accident in it i mean the famous and i believe apocryphal story about the discovery of penicillin is in a sense uh, a uh, an allegory of much human intellectual activity. Well, what this means is that you cannot organize universities so as to produce genius. Uh, all you can do is um, let them get on with it, and the, that will undoubtedly result in people at the bottom who are either dunderheads or bone idle. You have to put up with them. They are a price which is worth paying for the achievements at the other end of the spectrum. You may not be able to sort of determine the conditions under which genius will will result, but you can probably... Uh, you can uh, provide the facilities. You can do that, but also the reverse is true. You can probably set up a system where it's even more difficult uh, for genius to flourish. Yes, and that's what we've done, basically. Uh, what we've done is to create a system which is quite efficient at eliminating the extremes at both ends. It's efficient at eliminating... Um, the bone idle and the stupid. Um, it's also efficient at eliminating the original, the unconventional, um, the, uh, the brilliant. In my field, which is the late Middle Ages, one of the most transformative thinkers uh, of the 20th century was a man who isn't very well known, but whose pupils are uh, still fulfilling his role in universities across the land, called Kenneth Mac Bruce MacFarlane. And uh, Macfarlane hardly published anything. He was an outstanding teacher and researcher. He was a perfectionist. Uh, and he's an absolutely classic example of a man who had an enormously productive and influential university career, but would be drummed out under the current system because he wouldn't be clocking up enough points for his faculties, uh, re research assessment scores, and so on. Is, is there another uh, element to this as well, which is that there's certainly, um, uh, there's, there's certainly a sense that universities have become, unfortunately, places of much more like places of groupthink, where, where sort of um, heretical opinions uh, are sort of sat on in a way yes. they perhaps never used to be. Well, that is true, uh, although I think that it's very much more... Uh, the result of student attitudes than of the views of the institution uh, itself. I think two things have happened which have contributed to that. And this is looking back over 50 years or so. One of them is that universities have come to be regarded both by students and by the government as essentially places of vocational training. Um, uh, so that what you are equipping yourself to do is to make money and to add to the gross national product. I mean, that's the thinking behind the introduction of student fees. Uh, you are uh, being put in a position to make more money, so you should be paying some more, uh, not necessarily up front, but over your lifetime. Uh, that seems to me to be a serious distortion of the real function of universities, which I think uh, adds to the gross national product again, by accident rather than on purpose. The other thing that has happened is that um, students have become more vocal, which in itself is a good thing, uh, but also more intolerant of dissent. Uh, there is a correct view. Uh, it is a view which is often identified as being the opposite of whatever is the great other that you disapprove of strongly. And this is not 
an atmosphere which contributes to intellectual inquiry. I don't think that there is any such thing as an intolerable opinion. There are opinions that uh, are wrong, uh, but their being wrong, at least their being thought to be wrong, uh, is not a good enough reason uh, for suppressing them. Offensive? I think that we should be allowed to be offensive too. I mean, the way that, that English law traditionally um, deals with this is that it says you cannot even tell the truth in circumstances where it would cause reasonable people to breach the peace. And that seems to me to be a reasonable compromise. Um, uh, you are not allowed to foment riots, but uh, there is uh, absolutely nothing with uttering thoughts that other people find profoundly offensive. Um, I think that we simply have to learn to live with each other, and that means living with each other's opinions, whether you like them or not. And that seems to be a statement of old-school liberalism. Yes, this is, this is the proposition for which John Stuart Mill stood uh, in uh, his great work uh, on liberty, and I believe in it absolutely. So you take your... Law, law exams on your conversion, I imagine, and then you're sort of uh, then you're thrust into the cut and cut and thrust of yes. It, um, what sort of law did you specialise in? Well, I uh, went into uh, chambers that specialised in commercial law, which at the time meant mainly shipping uh, uh, and insurance. Um, it's somewhat broadened out since then, and I discovered, slightly to my own surprise, that. Uh, I was quite good at advocacy. I, I, used, I originally imagined that I would, uh, the way eggheads do think, uh, put my opinions down on paper uh, and in the form of opinions and that that was the sort of lawyer I would be. But I found that the stimulation involved in arguing often difficult intellectual points uh, against a background of ground rules that prevent cheating and evasion uh, is an enormously stimulating and interesting thing. And I discovered both that I liked it and that I was quite good at it, at least after a bit of practice. I mean, you're attracted to combat. <laughs> um, you have, the, you have the, the smell of cordite a little bit in your nostrils. I, I am attracted to something... Uh, which I think necessarily involves combat, but it's not the combat itself that I'm attracted by. What I'm interested in is the testing of, uh, of intellectual propositions against their opposite before a neutral judge who uh, acts as referee. Uh, there, most people, and I admit to doing this myself, most people intellectually cheat. If you ask yourself when you're having dinner with friends and having an argument about something, how often we've been tempted to make up or embroider facts, to add rather more emphasis to points than they deserve, to stray outside the, what is strictly relevant, to resort to something that may have an emotional appeal but doesn't actually advance the argument very much. I think anybody who says that he's never done those things is a liar. Um, but you can't do them in court.
Isn't rhetoric a part of the advo- whole advocacy thing? It's or not, is your st- is no, your style just a strip? No, back no, no. Rhetoric, style? rhetoric is a very important part of it, but there's a difference between rhetoric and emotion. Rhetoric isn't uh, necessarily an appeal to the emotions, and in court, it's wholly unproductive uh, to appeal to the emotions. Rhetoric is designed to persuade. It's basically uh, the skillful use of language. And it, it's, not a, it's not a form of cheating. Some people think, well, you know, this is basically simply a way of pulling, uh, um, pulling the wool over people's eyes. It's nothing like that at all. Um, a um, very fine advocate uh, told me when I was in pupillage that one of the golden rules is that um, when you're halfway through a sentence... A judge should never be quite sure what you're going to say in the second half. And that's not a bad rule. It means people pay attention. And rhetoric is essentially a way of commanding attention. Uh, It can uh, deteriorate into cheating, but that's bad advocacy. I mean, I've been listening to, over the last few days, I've been listening to a number of things that that, that you've been saying on uh, that have been videoed and so forth and that is exactly how I feel about your sentences which is and actually it's why it's sometimes you have to pay more attention <laughs> to what you're saying it's well, actually more achieved it, something it's more demanding actually because you have to you don't you're not given a sort of space to sort of like okay I know where we are you have to listen to the end of the sentence which is what completes the sentence yeah you also have to make sure you only say things once uh, because if a judge uh, knows that he's going to hear the same thing over and over again. He needn't pay attention the first or second or perhaps even the third time. And suddenly you've got to the end of the cycle and he hasn't heard it at all. So it's a good idea to get a reputation for only saying things once people pay attention. I, I imagine there'll be many people listening to this who have that reassuring sense that at the heart of the establishment, I guess, we, we might call it in legal terms, that there is this sort of like this nub of rationalism which is holding everything together. Yes, it's rational, it's intellectually honest, and there are advocates who resort to the irrational and the intellectually dishonest, but they don't, they don't persuade anyone. Is that right? So you think, you think in the end that, that this particular style, the truth will out? I mean, that's perhaps why you're so successful yes. as an advocate. Absolutely. It's, it's, the object is to persuade an objective, intelligent person who is interested in getting the right answer and really not in anything else. That's perfectly consistent with saying things in a way that commands attention and that is enjoyable to listen to. You're lucky you have a voice that that, that people want to listen to as well. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't cultivated it, I promise you. (laughs) So you spend spend your time doing that and then... The, the judging thing is a different is a is a different sort of um... well it's different in some ways uh, in theory the difference is that an advocate uh, has starts from the answer that his client needs and works backwards to devise a uh, uh, an argument whereas a judge starts from first principles and works his way towards the answer that's the theory it actually doesn't work like that um, what a judge does in most cases is uh, to uh, start with an instinctive answer to the the problem and then uh, see how far he can justify that. So you do work backwards, even as a judge. Um, and you eventually, in many cases, find an obstacle. And if you're intellectually honest, which 
judges by and large are, you have to modify your position in order to get round the obstacle. Now, judges obviously differ in the degree of muscularity that they bring to the task of shifting obstacles or getting round them. But basically, you, you don't start from first principles. You start from a body of educated instincts and knowledge which lead you to expect the answer to be X, and you then test that um, uh, working backwards. It's, it's not unlike um, the way that science generally works. You start with a hypothesis and you test it. I, I suppose this gives me an opportunity to, to link to Reith Lectures and, and your book um, on the state of the law and politics because, you know, people might imagine that that thing that you described against which you're testing it is something solid and objective and unchanging. But that's not the nature of... That's not the nature of a law that's built no, by not. custom. Not the nature of politics either. No. And so I, I'm trying to... What I'd quite like you to say is something about your awareness of how there's been this sort of mission creep, I guess, with, with law um, and how law has come to perhaps uh, overreach what you think are its legitimate boundaries. Well, one of the great intellectual problems which don't often exercise practical lawyers but do exercise legal philosophers is about what constitutes law, what is the basis of it. it this is a gross oversimplification, but uh, there are those who believe that law is a purely social construct a creation of the human intellect, a reaction to social problems, a matter to some extent in a democracy of collective sentiment. And there are those who believe that there are um, objective moral principles um, which, to which law ought to conform and which you can discover. Uh, Otherwise, they are prior to law, if you like, that you can discover them. They exist quite independently of the prejudices or opinions of human beings. Moses found them on the top of the mountain. Yes. Well, now, this was a view which uh, has been, it's not the prevailing view of legal philosophers, but it's a view that's been held by, by many people. But the problem is that uh, you need some source of legitimacy. Now, if you believe that the origin of all moral rules is God, the divine law, um, it's conceptually easy, practically difficult, but conceptually easy to decide where you stand on this. You say, well, there are divine rules that exist irrespective of what arrangements we happen to have made socially to which our social arrangements ought to conform. If you have a totalitarian state with an ideology, say Marxism, for example, uh, but it could be any other kind of ideology, uh, then you also have an external source of authority to decide what your moral rules ought to be. But what if you're a democracy? What is the source of legitimacy other than uh, what uh, people want? Um, now, there are various ways of filtering what people want to ensure that they don't do things in a way that is too jerky or ill-considered. Yeah, yeah. um, but 
essentially that is the source of legitimacy in modern Western societies. And it's very difficult to combine that uh, with a state of affairs under which you say, well, there are anterior moral rules that exist independently of what we think about them. In a way, what you're saying is that um, a metaphysics of law, as it were, can be a rather dangerous thing. Yes. And so I suppose my question then becomes is, and the way in which you talk about rights and human rights and human rights language makes me wonder whether you think that rights language introduces though it might not admit it, some sort of metaphysics, which... Yes, which it does. Yes. Well, it's implicit in the expression human rights. Um, human rights, uh, which an earlier generation, going back quite a long time, uh, would have described as natural rights. That's, what, that's the word that Blackstone, the first great systematizer of English law, used. Human rights are said to be rights that exist purely by virtue of our humanity, and independent of the social arrangements that we may make in order to organize ourselves collectively. I uh, totally reject this. I think that rights are a social construct. They are rights against our fellow creatures, and they are therefore rights which in a democracy require a measure of consent by those fellow creatures. They can't be imposed. Uh, they can't exist independently of the social arrangements that we make in order to govern ourselves. Um, and I, th that doesn't mean to say that I don't believe in rights, but I believe that we should arrive at them by a collective political process. Is it, is it no coincidence that, historically speaking, it feels like religion declines moral religion declines and rights language emerges at a similar sort of moment when, you know, as you lose a sense of natural law, I guess, then you, you get the, the same thing being reintroduced in a more humanistic idiom, but with actually a similar sort of a similar sort of pattern. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think that people have certain instinctive moral sentiments in a religious age, they will tend to associate those with, with God. Uh, in an irreligious age, they will have to associate them with something else. But the big problem that they then encounter is what makes my view about what rights should exist legitimate and your inconsistent view illegitimate. And without a, an external authority... Uh, there is there are only two answers to that. One is to say, well, I'm right and I'm going to pr impose my solution. And the other is to have a, a, a political solution uh, through, in a constitution like ours, an elected parliament. But you could have other arrangements potentially, but essentially an arrangement for making collective decisions. Um, now... Uh, this obviously means that you may find that your fellow citizens, being a majority, make decisions which you regard as profoundly abhorrent. But it goes back to what I said in a completely different context a few minutes ago, uh, that we actually have to live together in society. We have to 
live with each other, and we have to live with each other's opinions. We have to trust our fellow citizens not to do something uh, which is abhorrent to us, because the cost of devising an alternative system is bound to be a more authoritarian regime. So if I'm listening to this right, and there's a sort of sense in which human rights lawyers, I mean, part of your objection to something of, of what's happened with human rights is it's a new sort of clerical aristocracy almost that's been, it's been developed with human rights lawyers. How does that work with the, the way in which the law, I guess, of the last, over the last year, there's been a sense of and this may not be strictly accurate, but there's been a sense of the law versus the people. There's that famous, you know, uh, Daily Mail headline. And then there was, I know you were a supporter of the Miller judgments, but that was the sense that there was a, a, a battle going on between people and the courts. Is that a part of what you're describing here? Not really. Okay. Um, the law ultimately depends on what Parliament enacts. Uh, and uh, judges ought uh, to limit themselves to deciding what the law is rather than deciding what the law ought to be. My objection to mission creep by judges is based on the fact that judges spend far too much of their time deciding what the law ought to be uh, and imposing that solution. But I don't think that the history of the last year is about that at all. Um, if you take, for example, the, the most recent of the two Miller cases, um, that was uh, a case in which the courts were not seeking to claim a right of decision themselves, which is what I object to. They were seeking to preserve a right of decision which they considered that the law conferred on Parliament. Versus the executive. Yes, exactly. So this is actually a dispute between Parliament uh, and the executive in which the function of the courts was to recognize that we are, as a matter of law, a parliamentary democracy, um, and that parliament is supreme, and that the executive only holds power subject to accountability to parliament. And the basic problem in the Miller II case was that the government was saying, well, we can suspend uh, parliament for a time, the result, if the government had been right, would have been a very peculiar state of affairs because you would then have had a public power exercised by a public officer for, for the exercise of which that officer was responsible to absolutely nobody, not responsible to the Queen, as a 17th century minister would have been, because the convention is that the Queen's prerogative powers are exercised by ministers, not responsible to Parliament because Parliament had been prorogued, not responsible uh, to the electorate because the electorate isn't in permanent session. And anyway, the 2016 referendum wasn't a very satisfactory way of discovering what the electorate thought about the particular issues that were being debated. Um, so uh, you would have had a, a situation of total irresponsibility. Now, the common law has never accepted that a public power can be exercised on a basis for which you're simply responsible to nobody but yourself. So if that's not the an example of overreach by the law, what, what is an example of it? Well, an example of overreach by the law is a, a case in which uh, you uh, decide that 
uh, in which you, for example, you interpret a statute in an artificial way in order to conform with a pre-existing, essentially political sentiment of your own. I mean, that's a bit like what people felt was going on with the Miller. It wasn't. I mean, I did. I know that a lot of people felt that, but yes. it, it simply wasn't true. Yes, I okay. mean, I had retired by the time the Miller two case was decided, but I was party uh, to the first Miller case. Uh, I think I know what the views of almost all my colleagues are uh, on Brexit. They vary. Uh, I can tell you, I'm not going to discuss individuals, but there was no correlation between whether you dissented uh, and uh, what you thought about Brexit. Yeah, yeah. None yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. It was approached as a question of law. Do, I mean, do you accept that there was a reputational issue that's been that's been raised over the last year? I about... think many people felt uh, that this was politics by other means, and if they had been right, I would have entirely agreed that it was deplorable. Some case law, unfortunately, far too much is politics by other means, and I do deplore it, but these are not good examples of it. But the, the famous Daily Mail headline, Enemies of the People, there was none of that. That was about the divisional court decision, which then went on appeal yeah. to the Supreme Court. There was none of that in the, uh, uh, after the, the second decision, after the Supreme Court's decision. And I think the reason for that was that the proceedings in the Supreme Court are televised there's a, a, a continual live feed. You can go onto the internet any time and you can follow the argument. Uh, anybody who switched on that process or just looked at the extracts on the news every night uh, to watch what was going on could see that this was not an argument about politics. It was an argument about law. People were citing um, obscure cases about uh, crown leases in 1916 and requisitions in earlier periods and so on. Um, uh, this, uh, and I think that there was a high degree of acceptance that the Supreme Court's decision was not motivated by politics. But given the fact that you have already said that one of the things that you that, that you have a problem with is there is a lot of there is too much politics in the law. Yes, there is. Does it come from a? Does that politics in the law come from a pol particular political perspective? Do you think? No. Uh, I think that it comes from uh, a general attitude to government. We're talking now about public law. We're not talking yes. about you know, the law of tort or contract or anything yeah, like yeah. that. There are different judicial attitudes about uh, how far one should trust government and how far it is open to apply to government policies uh, objective analysis of judges. Um, I don't believe that it is the function of judges to decide whether they agree with government policy. I think that it is the function of judges to decide whether government policy is lawful, but that's a different matter. I mean, take for example, uh, it's an example that I cited in one of my wreath lectures, the debate over um, uh, medically assisted suicide highly emotive subject. It's a, 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 a morally difficult subject to approach. Um, it's a subject on which people feel very strongly. Now, um, this is not really a dispute between the state and the citizen. 
it's a dispute between different groups of citizens as to the extent to which you should be allowed to put an end to your own life uh, or to uh, enlist assistance in doing so. Now, and you know, much the same can be said about abortion. It's a profound moral issue between people who take different views about the viability and moral integrity of life before birth. Um, now, these are the kind of issues on which, if I disagree with my neighbor, we have to have a political process to resolve that disagreement. The problem about judicially deciding it is that it, it lacks legitimacy. It is essentially a statement, well, this is what I think, and you must lump it. And I do not think that it is the function of judges ever. And lacks nuance as well. I mean, it's it, la nuance well, it lacks nuance as well. I mean, you can see this at work in the United States. Why is abortion relatively uncontroversial in Europe? Since the mid-60s, Britain was one of the first, uh, every European country, with the exception of Malta, has adopted a scheme of regulated statutory abortion rights. And the result of that, and the fact that it was a parliamentary process in all of these democracies, has lent it legitimacy. As a matter of fact, the debate in the House of Commons in this country about the Abortion Act of 1967 was, I think many people would agree, one of the outstanding parliamentary debates. There were no three-line whips. Uh, uh, there was a very high level of moral and intellectual argument. Anyway, we are now in a situation where this is pretty uncontroversial. There are people who object to abortion still, but they are a small and very marginal minority. In the United States, it was imposed judicially. And that had two consequences. First of all, it lacked legitimacy because it took a major moral issue out of the hands of citizens uh, and decided it uh, by the Supreme Court. So it essentially relegated to irrelevance the views of individual citizens. That, I think, was a serious mistake, and it's the main reason why the present state of American law on abortion is not uh, regarded as legitimate. The second problem is that if you classify, as the Supreme Court in the United States did, abortion as a constitutional right, uh, what that means is that it's absolute. You can't except to a very limited extent, hedge it about with restrictions. If it's a right, it's a right, you can do it. Um, so that it became very difficult to have a framework of clinical regulation of the kind that exists in almost every uh, European state that has adopted it by statute. Um, the third difficulty about it is that it's there forever and a day. Uh, that's to say, no amount of changing sentiment can alter this legislatively if it's a constitutional right because there is a prior right uh, to abortion, then no amount of democratic activity will enable you to prevent it. The only way of changing the law is either for the Supreme Court to change its mind or else to amend the Constitution uh, with uh, the support of two-thirds of state legislatures and so on, which is practically impossible. Um, now, many people might think that it's, that's a good thing in the case of abortion. But let's look at another example. Um, 
uh, Citizens United was a, the case in which the U.S. Supreme Court said that there can be no constitutional limits on corporate spending on elections. So what you've got is uh, an election that can not totally, because people are not people can resist advertisements, but which an election which is open to a very high degree of manipulation by money. There's there's no effective election expenses limit now in the United States. Now, that's a much more controversial example because people are probably divided about whether that's a good thing. But the problem that they've got in the United States is that the Supreme Court having decided that that's what the Constitution means, there is absolutely nothing that anybody can do democratically to change that. Uh, it, that is the rule forever and a day short of a pretty well impossible a constitutional amendment and the result is basically to give uh, an important blocking power to minorities gun control is another uh, example uh, if it's a if it's a prior constitutional rule you can't change it and the powers of resistance to change of powerful lobbies are very considerable now what is wrong in all of these instances is a view that there is some a priori system of rules which prevails, which controls what citizens can decide politically. It's, it, it's like a papal edict. Yeah, it's similar to the human rights argument, except that instead of being something that you metaphysically say is inherent in humanity, you say, well, that's what the Constitution means. But in either case, the result is the same. It is removed from the domain of collective political decision-making. And I think that in a democracy, that is a, a, a very bad thing. And I accept that that means that majorities may do some deplorable things. But ultimately, we have to accept that risk. It's part of the process of living together with people who disagree with us. I mean, all of these things, I mean, and it's, uh, what you say there just reminds me a little bit of what you said about being an academic. In terms of having freedom, in order for us to have the freedom that we value, there will be those who abuse the freedom and we just have to accept yes, it as such. Exactly. I mean, the price of, uh, of rights to liberty is the abuse of those rights by other people. The price of democracy... Uh, is that we may find ourselves in a minority. Except it's interesting, isn't it? Because because those people who defend rights language often defend it as being an expression of the liberal tradition. Yes, I know. But the liberal tradition has no right to a privileged position in the Constitution any more than any of the other isms. And for those who would see that sort of liberalism as as allowing a form of barbarism or just keeping the door open to a form of barbarism is something you just think that's the risk that you have to take yes. within a civilised society. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that there are uh, some rights which I would accept it is right to entrench. Um, they are essentially rights uh, without which you cannot exist as a society at all so that the, 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 the capacity to make collective decisions disappears. So... For example, I would accept that uh, you have to have a right to uh, not to have your liberty or your life or your physical integrity 
interfered with arbitrarily, either by agents of the state or by third parties, you are entitled to a measure of security. Uh, and the reason why I treat that as being separate and exceptional is precisely that you can't have a society at all if you do not have a minimum of security and a minimum of protection against completely arbitrary interference with, with your own personal integrity. I'm thinking of Kant here, and I'm thinking about the way in which, on this description, it sounds like they're transcendental rather than metaphysical. They're yes. preconditions for the possibility. They're preconditions for the possibility of having being able to make any choice at all about such yes. things as yes. privacy, abortion, or any of the other things that we've been discussing. So they're discussing. very, very constrained. Yes. And I would add another category. Uh, we are a democracy, and I think that it is legitimate for a democracy to to entrench rights which are essential to its continuance as a democracy. So freedom of speech, freedom of association and assembly, um, freedom of the press, these are all things which I think are fundamental to our existence as a democracy. I have no problem about entrenching those. But these are all rights which exist in order that we may have a civilized collective procedure for making decisions. It's a much bolder and more objectionable step if you say, well, we also need rights to determine what decisions we're entitled to make. So is it, am I right in thinking that you think rights inhere not so much in the individual, but within a sort of collective political, uh, within society, as it well, were, rights, within a certain sort rights of society? Rights inhere in an individual if our collective decisions as a society are that the, that individuals should have those rights. I think that rights are entirely the creation of collective decision yeah. by societies. Yeah. They do not, they are not prior to societies. They have no existence uh, except by virtue of a collective decision that we should have those rights. There's been some talk in the last few days of appointing judges, politically appointing judges. I imagine that's something that you recoil at horror about. I think it's deplorable. I think there are two problems about it. One is it is objectionable, and the other is it's useless. It's objectionable because it assumes that judges decide cases in accordance with their political sympathies, which is simply not true. Uh, and Starting from that false premise, it seeks to limit the appointment of judges to those who hold certain opinions that happen to be shared by legislators. That's the position if you have confirmation hearings. Uh, and that seems to me to anything that limits the range of people from whom the judiciary may be chosen is bound to lead to a less satisfactory judiciary. The best way of having the ablest people is to have as broad a possible range of sources from which you can draw them. So a system under which legislators would be entitled to ask candidates for judicial appointment, are you a Remainer or are you a Lever, seems to me to encapsulate what's wrong with it, because it implies that if you take one of those opinions along with either 48 or 52 percent of the British population, you're unfit to be a judge. That, I think, is a perfectly scandalous state of affairs. It's useless for a different reason, uh, which the Americans have discovered. 
In the late 70s, there was a candidate to, for appointment to the US Supreme Court called Robert Bork, who withdrew his nomination at a late stage of the confirmation hearings when it became clear he wasn't going to be confirmed. And that's because Robert Bork was a very clever but very opinionated man, and he answered the questions that were put to him. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a dangerous thing to which do. Which <laughs> is a dangerous thing for some people to do. They don't do that anymore. They've learned that lesson. So these confirmation hearings, what you say is, well, Mr. So-and-so, how would you decide a case like the following? And you construct a hypothetical case that's designed to bring out some particular hang-up of your own as a, as a legislator. Nowadays, the answer is always the same. Uh, I would have to listen to the submissions of both sides and study the evidence and consider the authorities before reaching any conclusion on that subject. And there's no answer to that. So, you know, candidates are just not going uh, to be drawn into committing themselves on, on these points. So it's useless as well as objectionable. I suppose what people are trying to do here is that there is a sense that Notwithstanding your powerful sense that judges look at the evidence before them and can sit, consider it carefully and rationally and so forth, that a sense that judges may well take a particular sort of line on things. I mean, in private, they may come from a particular sort of background, they may have particular sorts of views about the world, and that given your sense that also they have quite a lot of power, political power, mm -hmm. that actually this is a political power that's not being democratically assessed because when someone like, I get someone like you, and we talk to someone like you, you just say, I judge it on the evidence I have before me and the nature of the law, and I... and I just get this sense that actually emotion and, and political positions inform that much more than is being acknowledged and admitted. I don't think political positions do, but I think that many judges have you know, particular views, for example, about the organisation of society generally rather than which party they vote sure. for. And, I mean, let's take employment law, for example. Now, there are judges who believe uh, that as many people as possible should be classified uh, as employees because that way they will have more statutory rights and they ought to have more statutory rights. There are judges who believe, contrarywise, uh, that uh, the more expensive it is to employ people, the more rights, in other words, that, that they have, the fewer people are going to be employed and therefore economically what you are doing is limiting the opportunities. Now those are two completely inconsistent views. There is a fair amount to be said for both of them in fact but they're inconsistent. Now judges who take these views are clearly going to start, if I can go back to my example of testing hypotheses, they're going to start with an instinct that the answer ought to be that somebody is an employee with rights or isn't. And they're going to work backwards and decide what are the obstacles to this, if any. It's true that their attitudes to these matters may influence the outcome if enough of people agree. But uh, essentially what judges are doing is they recognize that they are serving a society which has certain values. And part of the process of deciding cases, certainly at the ultimate appellate level, is to reflect the collective values of society as you observe them, irrespective of whether they are values that you happen to agree with. 
there are many cases which I can think of where I or my colleagues have decided a case because we accept that society has evolved certain values which have to be respected. A good example is freedom of the press. I think that the freedom of the press is very often abused. Uh, I think that the press not only bullies people sometimes, but that it frequently uh, has methods which are frankly inconsistent with the, the orderly operation of a, a legal system. For example, on the question whether you should disclose information uh, which would involve disclosing a source but might protect people from from a major terrorist incident. To take a purely hypothetical example. I think anyone observing the way that the press operates in our society must accept that that does happen. On the other hand, it seems to me absolutely clear that we have, as a society, decided that the advantages of a free press considerably outweigh the disadvantages and therefore that whatever we may personally think about the desirability of some of the press's misbehavior, we have to accept it as part of the price of something that's become a fundamental collective value. Now I cite that simply as an example of a case where many judges will have found themselves deciding in favor of freedom of the press notwithstanding their misgivings about it either generally or in the particular instance. And judges do that all the time, and it's right that they should do it. Uh, and I think that this is a good example of the way in which a collective value has been arrived at, which a judge has a duty to respect. We're not just consulting what we think. We are consulting what we think the the values of our society are. And there's a difference here between the values of our society and public opinion. Public opinion is a snapshot. Values evolve more slowly. Values, you can say, are a sufficiently persistent opinion. And judges have access to those values. I mean, some sort of unique access to those values no, that, 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 that uh, public opinion doesn't have? Well, no, because public opinion is changeable and it's only after uh, a certain amount of time that you can say that an opinion that people hold now represents a public value. And I don't think that judges have a unique ability to assess the values of the society which they serve, but they are intelligent, observant, and empathetic people, or they shouldn't be judges. I suppose, you know, one of the things that I imagine people in the law will be concerned about is this business of, about a sort of perhaps a reputational shift that may have gone on over the last while. There's a sense that access to the law is expensive and increasingly for wealthy people and not for poorer people. That's a, that's a perennial problem. There's a problem about representation, about judges looking a certain way in terms of diversity. And then there's this, what's happened in the last year, about a sense that albeit one that you, you, you say no to, but the law that comes from the judiciary and the public opinion has a sort of, feels intention. Those things together feel like they can create a, a problem of trust for the, for the judiciary, for the law in general. Well, the judiciary have to do their job. And uh, I 
don't think that we should be influenced by concerns about bias which don't exist simply because people think that they exist. I agree uh, that the fact that people think that they exist uh, is a problem, but I don't think that there's a solution to it other than trying to persuade them uh, that this is an illusion. I mean, unfortunately, and this may hark back to the point about confirmation hearings, judges have sufficiently often trespassed into the political domain to give ammunition to those who would like to subject them to confirmation hearings and to give ammunition to those who think that they have a political bias. That is part of my objection to it. I have much more fundamental intellectual objections to it, but I think that is a very serious practical problem about it, which is exemplified in the US Supreme Court which has been highly politicized, partly, I have to say, because of confirmation hearings. So I agree that there's a problem there, but I don't think that, uh, that there is a ready solution to it. Uh, diversity, well, uh, the judiciary is not a representative organization. It's not there to represent, it's not a congress of ambassadors of different points of view or different sectors of the community. It is concerned with the process of objectively ascertaining what the, the law and the relevant facts are. But I would accept uh, that there is a strong social expectation which needs to be reflected uh, in the judiciary so far as this can be done while respecting appointment on merit, which to a very large extent it can be. This is a very gradual cultural change and it will take a bit of time. But I, I do accept that we need a diverse judiciary because otherwise people will feel that this is an alien system and the fact that it isn't an alien system won't be a complete answer to that problem. The, the other thing that I talked about was about how expensive it is, I yes, guess. Yes, that, that, that complaint is absolutely justified. And, I mean, law is expensive because it requires highly qualified people who are, to some extent, scarce uh, and, you know, are going to charge a lot for their time. And I'm not sure what you can do about this. One thing you can do about it is have a comprehensive system of legal aid, which quite obviously, I think, in the criminal domain, we should have. Unfortunately, we don't at the moment as a result of decisions uh, of the uh, past government um, and its predecessor. But I think there should be, frankly, no limit to criminal legal aid. Civil legal aid raises other problems. I think that it is absolutely true that it is too expensive to litigate. I don't think there's any way of making it cheaper. There are only ways of meeting the cost from public funds. But I think that you have to recognize that as with any head of public expenditure, every pound that you spend on supporting litigation is a pound that you are not spending on the National Health Service, the army or whatever other cause may be dear to your heart. We can't have everything that we want. And well, I would regard public expenditure on the criminal justice system as being one of those indispensable things without which, frankly, it's hardly worth having a society at all. I don't think that public expenditure on the civil justice system, on funding litigation by private individuals, has anything like the same degree of importance. I think it is valuable, but it has to compete with other valuable things. I believe that we have gone too far in withdrawing legal aid 
from categories of civil litigation which are in no sense voluntary, notably in, in the area of uh, matrimonial and child law. I mean, given those three, the sort of the, the stuff about representation, the stuff about uh, the, the divergence of sense of divergence of opinion, stuff about how expensive it is, I can feel a difficulty here. But all I can hear coming back from you when I talk about the problems there are we're trustworthy, trust us. I don't say that that is an answer to the problems that you raised, uh, but we are trustworthy. I think that there is a lot wrong with the law. Uh, the way that the law is administered. Some of it is rectifiable without uh, objectionable side effects in other directions. Some of it, frankly, isn't. There's a lot right with the law, too. Uh, it is like all human institutions. It is highly imperfect, and the object is to have the least imperfect system that we can devise. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions